This is true for all drama. I always want to say that. But there are some (laughs) plays for which it's especially true. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob, and we are glad to be back with you for another episode of another great conversation of another great script. That was a lot there. So many and others. That's not how I usually say that. I got lost in it somehow. (laughs) Uh, We're back this week, everybody, from our special episode, which was, I hope, a blast for you to listen to. It was certainly a blast for us to do the camping trip episode where Jackson and I were in person over the summer at a campground in... um, Moab, actually, and we discussed Hades Town, the musical. It was really fun to be able to do that in person. Really fun to do that show, of course. Hades Town's incredible, uh, and so we're we're back from that. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for us. Yes, indeed. Yeah, no, that was super, super fun to get to do. Glad to get to share it with all of you. Glad to get to share kind of like fun, new and interesting programming as well. Um, uh, We like uh, kind of having these sort of seasonal hallmarks of different things that that emerge. And this was a new one. This was one that we got to try out. Hopefully, you know, in a someday world, we'll get to do it again. It's a little bit harder one to pull off given our changes of time zones, but it was fun to get to do that one. It's also fun to announce that we're coming up on one of the other pillars of our season, which is themed month beginning next week. Yeah, that is right. We do a themed month every season on No Script. If you're a longtime member of the community, you already know that. Maybe you've checked out some of our themed months in the past. If you're new, welcome, welcome. How this works is that in the kind of general life of No Script, we try to do a really wide variety of programming. Week to week, month to month, season to season, we try to do all kinds of scripts from all kinds of voices about all kinds of subjects in all kinds kinds of styles. We are committed to trying to have a diversity of theater in our discussions. Now, we do preference American drama, generally speaking, but other than that, we do try to get all kinds of things going on the conversations. However, once a season, we spend four episodes talking about plays, which instead of being a wide variety, have something in common. There's still a lot of variety in them, but they share some element. We've done months where we only talk about plays from a certain playwright. We've done months where we talk about plays which have a certain element in them, murder in the past, magic in the past. We've done plays of a certain era. We talked about ancient Greek plays at one point. We have done all kinds of themed months, and this year, We're going back to our version of the theme month with plays that share a certain element. And so this year, we are excited to announce that we are doing Mistletoe Month. Yes, we have returned to alliterative titles for the themed month, and uh, Mistletoe Month is the uh, the focus for this time around. All plays having to do with, you know... Christmassiness, um, winteriness. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
in that sort of vague theme world season of the year. Um, we're bringing it, bringing it to you as we near that season as well. Um, so excited to have the chance to kind of uh, chat about these plays and just chat about what it, yeah, just like what the ways that they'll talk to each other, what they mean to be kind of seasonal in this way, especially as we're all kind of looking to what seasonal plays to do coming up. We're excited to uh, kind of bring these in your direction. Yeah, Christmas plays, holiday plays are among the most popular plays in America. Even people who don't go to see plays may go to see a production of The Christmas Carol, for example, or The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, or White Christmas, or whatever. Some of those titles, not all of them, but some of them will appear in themed month. And so it's it's fun for us on the podcast to get to turn our attention to this very popular uh, instance of theater in America. And we're going to look at how those plays represent Christmas, how the sort of Christmas holiday spirit is um, is part of the plot, is part of the theme. I think that those things will be really interesting to look at. I think it will be pretty different in all four of the plays slash musicals that we look at during our time together. It's always fun to do a theme month. I think this one will be a fairly popular one among listeners, so it, it's just exciting to be on the front end of that. Um, talking across scripts rather than just within scripts is a really different way to a approach script analysis. And we don't do a lot of it on this podcast because our episodes are week to week about a different script. And so themed month is kind of the one time every season where we get to have discussions, comparative discussions, where we look at scripts together and say, how does this work differently than this? And so as somebody who studies script analysis, I am, I'm always really excited by that because comparative analysis is just as much fun for me as individual script analysis. Yeah, yeah, de definitely. The chance to kind of compare, contrast, juxtapose even uh, with, with some intention more so than we typically like 180 juxtapose scripts um, in our season. And uh, <laughs> and yeah, just uh, just excited to have the chance to talk about them in that way. So mark your calendars or mark your podcast apps for those of you who have moved on from calendars um, for, for that season coming up next week. And also get excited for today's script, which Woo! is uh, a fantastic script by a playwright who is uh, we are quite familiar with and the show is quite familiar with. We're talking about An Octoroon by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins today. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins is one of the playwrights in America right now. Uh, his plays are about as popular as anything out there in American drama. He is everywhere. He is, uh, you know, he's like a MacArthur genius kind of guy. That's who he is. He's a playwriting teacher as well as just a brilliant playwright himself. We've been to the Brandon Jacob Jenkins well many a time <laughs> on this podcast because his plays are just so good and just so interesting to talk about. We have talked about Gloria, which is a very different play than the play Everybody, which we've talked about, which is a very different play than the play Appropriate, which we've talked about, and all three are very different plays than An Octoroon, which is the subject of today's conversation. It's so, so fun to get to uh, spend time in his theatrical imagination, which is so varied and so interesting. I'm excited about that chance today. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's interesting the the yeah the the variants in the in the scripts and and what what all uh, kind of theatrical imagination we're getting to play in. Interesting as well, like we just talked about, you know, comparing scripts. Interesting as well that like like there is a version uh, that you can buy of both appropriate and an octoroon in the same play script package, like the same book play script package. It's a book, um, and uh, so 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 it is interesting to kind of think about those two at least you know next door to each other in a book. Um, uh, uh, so that's 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 fun there, and yeah, excited to get to the chance to talk about this play today and uh, and its own uh, facets that it brings into the theatrical imagination because there's a lot of theatrical imagination in this play. Before we get started on that conversation, it's that time of the episode where we ask those of you who have not already done so to consider checking out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, all one word, no hyphens, no underscores, just patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. Noscript exists because of our supporters. There's no other way to put that. It's not possible for us to do without the folks that support us financially on Patreon. There is a huge time investment and a fairly significant monetary investment that goes into making the show in this way. And because Jackson and I are not rich, it would not be possible to make happen if the folks on Patreon weren't supporting us. So huge, huge thank you if you're one of those folks that supports us. Again, you make doing this possible, so thank you. If that's not you yet, just check it out. See what you think. You may decide that supporting us is something that you really want to do to help be part of what makes this show go. There are different tiers on our Patreon page. The lowest tier is just a dollar a month. It's $12 over the course of the year. Even at that level, that is super, super helpful to us. Of course, there's higher tiers if you can afford that, and we super appreciate that too. Once you become a patron at any level, you'll get access to our page, which has posts about upcoming items on the show, other sorts of interesting things that we find. Um, for example, the patrons have known what the themed month is for a while now, uh, and, th- and today was the first day that we talked about it live on the show. So there's different kinds of benefits like that that you might consider. Just check it out, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. I hope to see you over there, and big thanks to those who are supporting us already. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, all of you over on Patreon. We'll see you over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. And now back to the script. All right. So before we get started on our context and synopsis, this is a great episode for us to say that this is a play about race in America. This is a play about slavery. This is a play in which blackface is a prominent feature of how the play is staged. This is a play in which uh, depictions of slavery are challenged and flipped on their head. We are talking about it because it's awesome, because it is just so stinking cool and we wanted a chance to talk about it. And that is why this podcast exists, to capture discussions of plays. So we're going to talk about it, but we're just two white guys. So we encourage you to check out other conversations on this play as well. You should listen to, there's so many, so many great interviews and talks about this play on YouTube through a quick Google search. We have listened to some of those in preparation so that we have some of that material and not just our own opinions as two white guys to bring to the table. But please check out other places as well. This play has so much in it and we're only going to be able to see it through, you know, our lens of who we are as humans. And that is a necessarily limited one. So please check out other voices and other conversations on an Octoroon 
soon as well. Uh, but we are going to forge ahead with the conversation because we're just so excited about it. Yeah, yeah, and it's as and and definitely check out other conversations and definitely go see the show. Like this show, like like stands in that zone so well of of uh, encouraging that conversation. Well, so yeah, definitely check out other sources. Let this be a, a, a just the first moment of you interacting with this, perhaps, and then jump off deep into the deep end with uh, the rest of the stuff around this play. I'm going to give us just a bit of context to start our conversation here. Uh, we've done Brandon Jacobs Jenkins before, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on him, but just a brief refresher. Um, uh, American playwright has won uh, the 2014 Obie Award uh, for play for both the plays Appropriate and An Octoroon, uh, which we're discussing today. Also plays Gloria, Everybody. Uh, we've got uh, Neighbors, War, Girls, and uh, now in 2023 Off-Broadway, The Comeuppance. So uh, definitely... Uh, a, a fair number of plays. Um, Jacob already said he's named a MacArthur Fellow in 2016. Um, and uh, Gloria and everybody were both finalists for uh, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2016 and 2018. So, a well-lauded playwright. Um, uh, and, and yeah, Jacob already mentioned how many of his plays are kind of... Uh, Firestormy, kind of taking taking over a lot of the conversation around theatrical spaces, and this one certainly did as well. Um, the Octoroon, or uh, an Octoroon, which is an important distinction, yeah, as, you're about, as you're about to find out. There. <laughs> An Octoroon is a melodrama, and excited to kind of get into some of the some of the weeds on what all that means, etc. Um, but uh, uh, it's a it's an adaptation of. Now I wrote down this guy's name because it's it's at least French inspired. Um, <laughs> Dion Boussico um, uh, wrote the play The Octoroon back in uh, 1859, um, which was based on a book, The Quadroon, uh, from 1856. Um, uh, and, uh, so, so, uh, Vernon Jacob Jenkins kind of approaches that play, uh, that Busico wrote, um, and does kind of a contemporary adaption of it. Um, this, uh, play that, uh, Jenkins, uh, Jacob Jenkins wrote, um, premiered at the performance space, uh, 122, uh, in 2010, or I'm, I'm sorry, it was the kind of workshopped in, in, in that space, performance space 122. It got its, um... Uh, kind of off-Broadway premiere at the Soho Rep Theater. And there's some fun uh, kind of distinction between the spaces that uh, Jacob Jenkins has done some interviews on of like the kind of scrappiness of the spaces that it was kind of built in, uh, written in, and then moving to uh, uh, Soho Rep as kind of this this much bigger space, a space that melodrama is often performed in. So uh, some fun distinction there. Again, um, uh, this play uh, won the Obie Award in 2014 based on that production. Production. Um, and then it kind of continues to have productions. Mixed Blood Theater Company um, uh, does a production of it. Um, uh, the Company One Theater in Boston produces it. It has a production over in, in uh, London as well. West Coast uh, has Berkeley Repertory Theater doing an Octoroon. And so uh, on, on and on it goes. I have a, a longer list of uh, various houses, both regional and college, um, that have kind of continued to do this play. Um the uh, I, I think the, the I don't I don't want to get too into the weeds on the historicalness of of the kind of previous versions of the play, but it's worth noting as it's a uh, a, uh, a the title of the play and will be a, a part of the content of the play that the title itself um, an octoroon it an octor, uh, octoroon is a 19th century kind of racial term to denote someone who has uh, one great 
grandfather, great grandfather, am I saying that right? One great grandparent and seven that is black and then seven uh, great grandparents who are white. So it's a, a very dated term to describe um, that that sort of uh, that that sort of breakup of ancestry, um, and uh, it will be a pivotal part of what we kind of talk about in the melodrama today. Right, and of course that uh, being able to denote that that this person has one black great grandparent, there is a long-standing principle that for a while was a legal principle in the United States that we now refer to as the one-drop rule, right? Which is this really rooted in racism, eventually in Jim Crow, but for a while in slavery, where if you had any black ancestry in your family, you were determined to be black under the law. And so an octoroon, in this case, that that the title character of the show is named Zoe. Zoe is a person who has seven white great-grandparents and one black great-grandparent, and thus in the 17th century context of the play, or the 19th century, rather, context of the play, is um, denoted as black. And because so, she is a slave and has, you know, has, at one point believes he's received her free papers, but has not and is sold at a slave auction in the play. And so you sort of see how the legacy of racism, the sort of like the, there was a perception of, of a person like Zoe having tainted blood, basically, because she had a great grandparent who was black. You can see the way that that racism and perception of the world was built into the American legal system. We could go on and on into how that influences modern day politics, but I think uh, that's maybe not the subject of our conversation today. But hey, let's uh, have a drink sometime. We'll talk about that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, so, an octoroon, as Jackson said, it's based on a melodrama by Dion Busico. I, I, I've gone back and forth as I've been preparing for this recording episode about how to do the summary of this play because it's. I mean, it's wild. It's it like, is. It's very hard it's to like get a hold of. Delightfully unhinged. Like, yeah. It's, well, yeah. it's funny that you say that. New York Magazine, the the quote, one of the quotes that is included in a lot of materials. New York Magazine called this play so energetic, funny, and entertainingly demented. You can't <laughs> look away. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's I think right that's, on. You know, I think that's probably right on. It's it's <laughs> uncomfortable. It's designed to make you uncomfortable in places. In some ways, it's designed to ask you, like, what should you be laughing at? Yeah. What should you, can you laugh at? And does it matter who you are that determines what you can laugh at? So you can imagine what I'm on the front end of and the missteps <laughs> that I may make in the next five or ten minutes or so. Um, I think what I'm going to do is describe more of the context of Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' adaption of The Octoroon, and I won't go into too much detail about the plot of the melodrama within it. Uh, I'll give a general overview of that, but I can't imagine that we're going to spend a ton of time today analyzing the plot of this, you know, 1850-something melodrama that Brandon Jacob Jenkins is playing off of. The much more interesting stuff that he's doing is in how he stages it. So that's where I want to spend my synopsis time. So the play starts with a character named BJJ. Now, uh, that, of course, 
is the initials of Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. You make the your own conclusions right. there. Uh, we have talked before about David Henry Huang, who's one of my favorite playwrights. That is a convention that he uses for a long time whenever he wants to stage himself is to include a character with the same initials as himself. I, I suspect that Brandon Jacobs Jenkins was directly influenced by David Henry Huang in including that in the play. But a playwright named uh, BJJ comes out onto the stage. This is a black playwright. And he talks initially about these conversations that he's had with his therapist about his sort of unhealthy relationship with the American theater. His therapist encourages him to stage an adaption of one of his, what he says is one of his favorite plays, one of the playwrights that he's admired, Dion Boussico's play, The Octoroon. So BJJ describes how he began to stage an adaption, but all the white people quit because they didn't want to play these evil racist characters, basically. And his therapist says, well, okay, why don't you just play all the characters yourself? Um, now, introduced into that, we get a character called the playwright. The playwright is a white actor. It becomes very clear that the playwright is Dion Boussico. And uh, Dion Boussico describes how all his favorite theater, the Winter Garden Theater, which is where the Octoroon in 1850-something premiered, um, he, he describes how it burnt to the ground, how he's delighted that the play is back, how crazy it is that you can actually hire black people to be in the play these days, because we couldn't do that back in our day. And basically what happens is both the playwright, who again is a stand-in for Dion Boussico, and BJJ, who is a stand-in for Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, the two playwrights that have, you know, are the 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 creators of this thing, get into um red face and white face respectively. Uh, apparently in the history of the play, Dion Boussico, a white Irish guy, actually did play the indigenous character in this play all the time. He would just like step into that role. So he would be in what we would call red face, right? Which is dressing yourself up as an indigenous person when you're not in a full headdress and tomahawk and all that kind of stuff. And then Brandon Jacob, the Brandon Jacob Jenkins stand in puts himself in white face. So he puts on white cake makeup and a blonde wig and plays, uh, the two white characters in this play that are the kind of, if, if you're familiar with the melodrama genre, they are the kind of uh, pillars of the play, the good guy and the bad guy, upon which the rest of the plot revolves. George and a character named McCloskey, who is their, their competing landowners for this plantation. Um, so they play those. Then there are several other folks that come throughout. Uh, the playwright, my understanding is the playwright has an assistant. This assistant is described as being Indian and Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, the real playwright, not the character playwright, uh, basically in the script says, you determine for yourselves what the word Indian means to you. That may mean a person of South Asian ancestry. That may mean a person who is indigenous. Uh, that may mean an actor who can pass as indigenous. Whatever it means, that's the kind of person that you're looking for to play the assistant. The assistant then puts on blackface and plays two of the slave characters in the course of the show, Pete and Paul. Um, Pete is an older slave character, uh, and then Paul is a young slave boy. 
Um, and and so that that character, the assistant in blackface, plays those characters. And then you also get uh, Zoe. Zoe, of course, I've already described, is the title character, and Octoroon is, is what you're looking for, Brandon Jacob Jenkins says. Uh, he says that this person could be a white actress, a quadroon actress, a biracial actress, a multiracial actress, or an actress of color who can pass as an Octoroon or an actual Octoroon. There's a lot of, you know, sort of the kind of person that you're looking for there, I guess. Uh, there is also, uh, and, and so Zoe is the, um, she is the descendant of George's uncle, who is the uh, plantation owner who recently died, and his uh, relationship, I guess, sort of through time with various different um and uh, 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 people who were slaves on the plantation at different points. We don't get a lot of tracking of like the specific ancestries of any folks. Um, and then you also get Dora. Dora is a white actress and she is playing a white person who owns another piece of large land nearby. Um, her family is very wealthy and she offers a sort of opportunity for George to save the plantation if he marries her because of her wealth. Then there are three uh, female people. These are black actors, and they are all slaves. These are uh, stagings of the slaves on George's plantation. There is, uh, and they are Minnie, Ditto, and Grace are their names. There is also another character that floats throughout. There's actually two more, but they're played by the same actor. And this is the character of Briar Rabbit. Um, which, of, of course, is a character that features in African folktales. And basically, that, that character floats through the play unseen by the rest of the cast members. During his description of writing plays, the character BJJ says, you know, I wanted to write a play with animals in it, but people accused me of basically deconstructing African folktales, which is not true. I was just trying to write a play with animals in it. And so this Briar Rabbit character floats throughout. The suggestion is that Briar Rabbit and then later Captain Rats, who's one of the people who attends the auction, be played by the actual playwright or another artist involved in the production. What's, of course, very awesome is that Brandon Jacob Jenkins did play Briar Rabbit literally in the original productions of this play. So when he says played by the actual playwright, he means himself or another actor involved in the production is his suggestion. So, um... Basically, they play out the plot. That group of folks plays out the plot of the melodrama The Octoroon um, in various uh, racially offensive stereotypical stagings, right? Um, uh, the BJJ, a black actor, is in whiteface playing George, and George is uh, trying to save his uncle's plantation, which is in financial ruin. He's in love with Zoe, uh, but he ha may have to marry Dora in order to save the plantation because he can't marry Zoe because, again, although she you know presents as white, she is technically black in the legal sense because of her one-eighth black heritage. Uh, but so he can't marry her because, of course, that'd be a mixed race marriage and horrible in the in the history of this play. There's an item about the history of this play related to that, which we'll talk about, which I think is crazy. Uh, and so that's George. And uh, McCloskey is apparently he has won a lot of the plantation through gambling with George's uncle and now wants the rest of it. He's sort of in lust with Zoe. And when he discovers that she's technically not free because of some legal loophole from the past, he actually sets out to buy her 
her in order to have her and the plantation. Very much the evil, racist, white portrayal from, uh, you know, in the context of a melodrama. Uh, you know, the, the plot is sort of is what it is. Uh, if you look up the Octoroon, they're trying to save the plantation. There actually is um, a letter that is arriving with the money to save the plantation, but McCloskey swoops in and steals it ahead of time. In doing so, he murders Paul, who is, uh, you know, the young boy and pins it on the indigenous character, uh, whose name I'm going to struggle to pronounce, but Wanadi. Um, again, who's played by the playwright who actually was played by the playwright, Dion Busico, in the original <laughs> The Octoroon. Just crazy. Um, and then they, ha- they end up having an auction of the estate in which a slave auction is staged, including the assistant character who is an Indian actor in blackface playing some of the slaves as well as three black female actors playing the other slaves. The, the plot of the melodrama goes on until the last act of the melodrama drama in which BJJ, the character, sort of steps out and says, I didn't really know how to stage this because it requires a steamboat to blow up and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. So I'm just going to tell you about it. They, him, BJJ, and the playwright character attempt to tell you the plot of the melodrama, but they end up deciding that they want to stage it anyway. And then they step in and stage it in which McCloskey is revealed to be the villain who murdered Paul and has been trying all these dastardly tricks to get the plantation and so he is captured he sets the steamboat afire in an attempt to escape his capture and ends up getting killed by the indigenous character then we go back to the plantation where Zoe has decided that because she has been sold back into slavery after believing she was a free woman uh, she would rather swallow poison and uh, it also has to do with her being in love with George and so she takes the poison and goes off stage to do that Um, and we end our conversation with two of the black women Minnie and Ditto uh, having their conversation about what their future is going to look like they play a little wink to the audience like ah you know wonder if if all what it'd be crazy if something happened to totally make all of the past you know day and a half of the of our lives just meaningless because of course the letter arrives just in time the plot of the melodrama i'm just really sweeping through so if that seems a little vague i think that's fine because it's a lot more about what brandon jacobs jenkins is doing to stage it one of the major things that he's doing and i'd I'd love to if we started our conversation here jackson is in the way that he writes the dialogue for the slave characters um, there's a quote, there's a sort of note from the playwright inserted in scene one. And I would assume you would want to include this in the production somehow. It seems the, the implication to me is that it's the, this note from the playwright is part of the play, especially given all the meta theater stuff. And basically Brandon Jacob Jenkins, right? I'm just going to quote him. I'm just going to say this right now so we can get it over with. I don't know what a real slave sounded like and neither do you. And the point that he is making and that is clearly made in the way that he has staged the slave characters is all, almost all the literature and media and various portrayals we have of slaves are from a white person's gaze, right? They're either white people are around and thus there is an authority, power, a violent threat figure in the world, or a white person is imagining what they thought slaves sounded like when white people weren't around. And so what he's done is written the slave characters in the play with a very contemporary vernacular. 
And then whenever a white person is around, they immediately switch into like the kind of racial tropish stereotype that you would imagine from media pieces of the day. And, and to me, that's one of the major sort of things that he is suggesting is that slaves had uh, an inner life when white people weren't around that is not fairly portrayed uh, or, or even imagined by the sort of dominant white culture in our media. Yeah, yeah, that happens fairly early in the play. I think uh, it's it's Pete who is the person who does that earliest. Um, Pete kind of comes on and is just kind of talking, talking with uh, the other the other people on stage uh, with 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 Dora and Minnie, uh, or I'm sorry, with Minnie and Ditto. And then as soon as George comes on stage, he kind of switches into this kind of whatever the stereotype is of of dialect and et cetera when he's talking to George. So yeah, that that's sort of like. There's that little bit of uh, disorientation that happens as as you're watching it. I think this play deals with disorientation quite a bit and alienation too, to bring in some of the Brechtianness uh, of this play. But that that move right away towards the early part of the play kind of lets you know. In addition to the whole kind of first scene, which is a very surreal sort of alienation experience, um, but but lets you know right away that there's a lot of kind of even even as you're watching the narrative of the melodrama play out, there's lots of this kind of uh, both critique, but also uh, disorientation that's that's being uh, uh, used to kind of bring home a little bit more of the 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 message or the moral, which uh, in the melodrama comes quite late, but it's kind of teeing up its own moral um, as it's as it's running along. Uh, Judith Moreland, who directed the Los Angeles premiere of *An Octoroon*. Uh, talks about the challenge of finding actors for the particular, the, the roles of the three women, uh, Ditto, Minnie, and um, Grace, because of the, the, the importance that that code switching plays in this staging of an octoroon, that uh, giving that life to the slave characters who, who did not have that life in the original The Octoroon and who are very rarely in any kind of earnest way presented as having an inner life separate from white people is, is so important to Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' staging. She has a lot to say about the casting of the show, but I, I found that particular challenge or uh, you know opportunity that she describes, she, she does a whole very long interview about staging the play really fascinating that that to this director that code switching was a, like a sort of a central element of what Brandon Jacobs Jenkins is doing yeah there's a lot of that kind of uh i i liked what you said about um the uh whether whether or not to include uh that that line that, that or that stage direction from uh Jacob Jenkins in the production um, because there is there truly is a lot that's happening in the stage directions of this play um there's there's rather robust ones sometimes where it kind of like lays out some of the uh almost like there's some like almost uh vaudevillian melodramatic shenanigans that 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 the that the crew gets up to and and the stage directions kind of deliver some of that uh zaniness to the reader um and it's almost it almost feels like a moment that BJJ would be like breaking in and and speaking uh something into it but 
but that's not the way it's written. That's not the character that's on stage kind of reading off these stage directions. So you wonder about like, yeah, do you include it in the bulletin? Do you use placards to lean even more into the Brechtianness every once in a while? Um, uh, yeah, it's just interesting to try, try to dream of ways to include some of these really, really uh, sometimes fun, sometimes particular, sometimes and often a v very, very integral and important stage directions as far as like activating the full vision of what the playwright wants. The playwright being Brendan Jacob Jenkins, not the character, um, wants from this piece. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the most fascinating one to me is the first time that Captain Rat appears, who's the captain of a, a steamboat. And he really only appears for the purpose of being a competitor in the auction to McCloskey. And, and there's a whole back and forth that Brandon Jacob Jenkins has in just in a stage direction about like how should this character be staged how who is playing this character how obvious is it how do we stage the auction itself or is the audience involved does this character then go into the audience is one of the audience members made to feel that they are this character there's a whole it's it's probably a three quarters of a page of Brandon Jacob Jenkins laying out ideas and then in the end kind of says, well, for, for now, I guess let's go with the idea that it's the Briar Rabbit person playing Captain Rat. But the indication, I think, is that there's a lot of options. And, and same as you. It's like, to me, that's such a delightful piece of the play because the play in some ways is Brandon Jacob Jenkins figuring out how to stage this 19th century melodrama. And in fact, he appears as a character in the play and is called for to be an actor in the play, you, you, you sort of feel that any note from Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, even when it's clearly through the formatting, denoted as being a stage direction, right? It's in italics, it's in parentheses. You wonder about, like, how is the audience supposed to connect with that? Are they? Or is this one truly just a note for the production ensemble? Yeah, yeah, it's it's all this kind of wibbly wobbliness, uh, and 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 some of uh, not some of it. I'm quite sure that that is deliberate, because <laughs> um, even in the in the reading of it, um, you kind of get you get that same sense of of what happens in Act Four when suddenly you're jerked back out of the melodrama, and BJJ, the playwright and the assistant, talk you through this pretty robust moment of the plot. Um, it's it's all this this kind of consistent effort to um, note the feeling that you're feeling um, uh, rather than just kind of ride by on the on the buzz of feeling a feeling and and the kind of fun spectacle of what's happening in front of you. Um, but but rather that 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 moment of disorientation that kind of brings you back out of of what's happening is happening even in the reading, which is really special, especially on this podcast where we talk a lot about plays that we read and recommend that you read plays. It's really special to be kind of welcomed into the experience of, of what, what happens on stage just in the reading of it as well. And I mean, I think it's important too, that like what the, the experience that you have with this play is so much dependent on it, the way that it is staged and not the way that it reads. I mean, in some ways, this podcast format is a little bit troublesome to try to deal with this play because the lie, again, this is true for all drama. I always want to say that, but there are some <laughs> plays for which it's especially true. And this was one of those plays because the actors being in their costumes, in the white face, in the black face, in the red face, is so important to what Brandon Jacobs Jenkins 
is doing. And, and part of what he's doing, right, is pointing our attention to the fact that it's not an invention of his. I mean, that's what's right, is that this play, The Octoroon, not an Octoroon, but The Octoroon, when it was staged in the 19th century, everybody was in blackface. There were no black actors. Yeah. So Brandon Jacobs Jenkins say, basically saying, I am going to make the fact that people were playing a different race in these offensive, stereotype, tropish ways part of a contemporary performance, you know, in 2014 when it came out or now in 2023 where there are still productions that are very popular of this play. He says we, we're not going to remove ourselves. We're not going to distance ourselves from the history of how this story was told. The story aside, which there's a lot that he does with the story, in some ways what he's really dealing with is how the story was told. And by putting an actor in whiteface, I think that it's designed to be alienating or separating to white audiences in the same way that I, I can only imagine, because I'm not a black person myself, that seeing people in blackface would have been for people who were black in the history of this country. And in truth, that's the history of, the, of American theater, the history of American Black theater. Brandon Jacob Jenkins talks about this when he went to study performance studies at NYU. That when he went, when he stepped into that, he, he sort of learned that there is this the history of black theater and starts with blackface, and that's a troublesome history in our country. Yeah, yeah, it definitely like leans into it and doesn't allow you to look away from that. Um, and it also tees it up really well, and just that just having that opening scene being. Um, the putting on of the makeup also yes. like that's that's such a good move, <laughs> especially in the kind of charged atmosphere in which the play is starting. So it's not like someone just walks on um, out of the blue in in either black or white face um, and you're and then the audience is kind of confusedly sitting there like going like, wait, 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 what, what play am I in? Um, <laughs> are we are, are am I supposed to be trying to like learn something from this or am I supposed to like leave here mad and critique this production? Um, instead, the opening that opening scene is just masterfully written to make it really clear what is happening in this play and the critique that is happening and then to bring on the other playwright and have everyone putting on all the all the all the various degrees of of blackface whiteface and redface um all all on stage at the same time you get this really clear sense that like this is this is very intentional. I'm saying something particular with this, and we should be continuing to think about that as we engage what follows in the coming acts. And it happens in so many more ways, too. I mean, I think when we think about melodrama as a theatrical form, it's one of those like crucial forms to the history of American drama. And I think we we sort of look down on it because it it's this older theatrical style that feels very exaggerated and stereotypical and, uh, you know, disingenuous these days. But I, there's a great interview with uh, one of the professors at Yale. I think it, he's the head of dramaturgy or something. I'm, I'm sorry that I can't remember exactly who it was. But he's talking about Brendan Jacob Jenkins' play and Octoroon and, and the importance of melodrama in the history of America. And of course, melodrama, and this is where I, I'd like to drive our attention to because it's something you can't get from the script, right? Melodrama, melody drama. It, it Music was 
crucial to melodrama, the underscoring music that defined the big emotional swells, the the sort of music that would tell you that a bad guy's on stage, the music that would tell you that it's dangerous now, was so crucial to the emotional, getting pulled along emotionally and swept into the big stories of good versus evil. And Brandon Jacobs Jenkins has played with music, too, throughout the play. He calls for modern rap music, modern hip-hop music throughout the show. At one point, when the playwright, again, who's supposed to be Dion Musico from the 19th century, is on stage, the music flips into what he just describes as old-timey music that seems to sort of comfort Dion Musico for a while. I, I think that Brandon Jacob Jenkins has not has also asked you to not shy away from the importance of music in the emotional swell, but takes that turn to say, you know, uh, a harpsichord or, or, or pipe organ or whatever is not going to have that same effect on modern audiences. So find a contemporary musical journey that you can bring modern audiences on so that they still experience that staging of melodrama. It is an interesting uh, thing to, to hold in, uh, in tandem with that, because because I agree, music is used so so well in in this to kind of still honor that 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 uh, core need in melodrama to kind of stir up the emotions with music, and also I see it's just it's so interesting that that kind of um, the tactics of Brecht and the theater of alienation are being used with a melodrama because I also experience those moments of music as like pulling you out of 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 this like eighteen hundreds. Uh, uh, melodrama that's happening in front of you. It's another one of those reminders to to kind of like re-engage. It's it's similar with the kind of vernacular language used in it. Um, uh, so so you get like the stirring of emotion that happens with with the um the desynchronization with the the thought that this is like an an eighteen hundreds narrative that's just happening in front of you. Yeah, well, I I think that that's also possible. My my impulse is that. Once the the contemporary music makes its appearance and then becomes part of the world of the show, it becomes something that brings the audience along in the way that uh, music did for melodramas back when they were staged more regularly in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I do – I'm somebody that really loves music as part of theater for that reason, for its power. And, I mean, there's no greater example of that than musicals, right, which are very much linked to melodrama in the way that these big – right, musicals are often these big, you know, uh, battles of – good and evil in, in more or less subtle ways nowadays, but they involve these big sweeping emotional pieces of music that pull you along throughout. And so it's interesting to think about, like, if you were staging Brandon Jacob Jenkins and Octoroon, when does the music become more alienating? When does the music intentionally draw you back in? I think that being intentional about that, again, uh, the director from the Fountain Theater that did this whole interview about it talked about the brilliance of all of the music that was written for the show. And finding the the way that it's supposed to be utilized for each moment. Yeah, yeah, especially like so. So the play ends with music. The play like has the the final moment of of or the final stage direction is 
than a blackout in which there is singing. Everyone sings. And and uh, that sort of like super impactful ending again is is tugging on the power of music in in darkness. Music rises. Um, like like feel 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 whatever you want to feel with association with that because there is a feeling associated with that. Um, and and everyone's singing too. What an interesting prompt. Surely you can you can play this the, the kind of safe route of like <laughs> just the cast means everyone right. But this play has involved the audience come kind of through complicity through uh, scenes that happen. In the audience so what would it look like to try to get you know a song that everyone at least knows enough to hum um in the dark (laughs) as the last moment of this play that that again speaks to how important music is to this play that it is the defining moment and and wondering around the possibility of everyone in the theater singing together how what what an impactful moment that would be as the kind of final beats of the play there is just so much fascinating stuff about uh, Brandon Jacob Jenkins bringing this old script nowadays, right, 1850-something, to life now. The more that you look into around and about this play, the more that you discover of the melodrama itself is, is, a, is a very direct transplant from Dion Busico's script. So many of the lines, like a huge percentage of the lines, once you actually get into the plot of the melodrama, are just Busico's script just rehashed to the point where there are moments where it feels like Brandon Jacobs Jenkins is making commentary, but it really is just Dion Busico's writing. And some of that is, I mean, his prominence as a melodrama writer at the time, he's hugely popular. This play, the or rather that play, The Octoroon, was hugely popular at the time. And it, it, it contributed to some of like the way that drama evolved in a really meaningful way but there are weird little uh call outs that if you like you look into them and you say though that's brandon jacobs jenkins commenting on the piece no that's actually from the musico script at one point he describes how the indigenous character talks and the language sounds like he, he describes it as a mashup of all these different languages and you're sort of thinking oh brandon jacobs jenkins is saying that Busico didn't write a particularly uh, a specific language that this indigenous person would speak in. But actually, that's Busico describing the language as a mashup. And apparently that's one of the first instances of the word mashup appearing. So there's also some delight of... Uh, uh, it's it's not like the homage that Brandon Jacob Jenkins is paying, but the seriousness with which he took bringing the melodrama into con- the contemporary landscape. There's, I mean, there are changes and additions and inclusion, especially at the end, but a lot of it is direct from the script that Busico wrote. Yeah, yeah, those kind of those moments like allow for mo- like super like, yeah, homage is a little a little touchy but like ref- reference moments it allows you to be like, "Ooh, what was happening back then on the stage in when 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 this was produced back in the 1850s." Um and then also allows for moments where like like in that scene where um BJJ and the playwright and the assistant are trying to sum up the last act of the play you have this kind of repetitious scene that ends up happening. And that's another moment where it kind of like locks 
walks home is like, oh yeah, this is, <laughs> some of this, surely, I, I didn't do the side by side, so I can't confidently say that, it, that it's verbatim, but like, this is something that happened in the play, and these words were spoken, you know, almost, not quite almost, but almost 200 years ago, um, and, uh, and are being spoken again today. Yeah, there, there, there's a great moment in there as they're trying to describe the way that Busico ends his play. And basically in the climax of the melodrama, the ability to instantaneously develop a photograph becomes yeah. really central to the plot. And of course, in the 1850-whatevers, that was a really novel, and I'm using that word in particular because Brandon Jacobs Jenkins does, that was a really novel piece of technology, the ability to do that. And so the the playwright and the BJJ character, they're telling this story in tandem, describe how that was a really cool way to pull together the plot at the end because it was so new. And so there was some delight in seeing that sort of new thing as part of the story, even if it doesn't make a ton of sense. He points out that, like, what, nobody looked at the photograph all along? Like, he took all these right. pictures and then <laughs> they just sat there? But there, that sort of little plot hole ends up getting glazed over because of how delightful the photograph as a technology was to the audiences of the day. And he says, the BJJ character says... Well, you know, is theater, what is theater anymore? I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing. He says, you know, what is theater anymore? How There's not really a way for us to stage anything new. You can experience anything nowadays. And so how what, what feature does novelty play in the theater anymore? I'm not sure that it does. And I find that delightful because, of course, at the same time, He's presenting us with something very novel. Very novel. <laughs> something that is, I mean, at least to me, very new and striking and delightful in its uncomfortability, in its alienation, in its strange storytelling methods. And, and uh, gosh, there's just so many more instances of that using what happened with Busico's writing and staging of the script as the basis for which it's happening now in our time. There's the, so so many more of those instances and so many more facets that we could talk about. I feel like we, we I mean we always say this, but but again because of the like various layers of this play, I feel like we could go another hour basically and keep finding individual moments to talk about and different things to talk about. Alas, we have arrived at the end of our time for this part of the conversation on the podcast itself, but Fortunately, we don't have to end the conversation uh, at this moment. We can continue to chat with all of you via the magic of the internet. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites, especially the social media sites, and we'd love to keep having the conversation and also be a spot where folks can come to find people to have conversations about. So find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about an Octoroon with you. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes theater, that likes stories, conversations about writing. Send them our way. I think they'll enjoy these conversations and participating in the community conversations that take place afterwards. I think one of the great things about An Octoroon and, and everybody that I've heard talk about this play, including Brandon Jacob Jenkins in many interviews, says the conversations afterwards are so 
so much of the experience. And yeah. so I hope that remains true. Participate in those conversations. Join us. Send this podcast on. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, all those places that you get your podcasts. And also by liking us on Facebook, where a link to the new episode appears every Monday for an easy click and play from there. Next week, we're back with themed month for season 11. Here we go. We're jumping into the themed month. Excited for that. Excited to get to chat with all of you again next week. So until then, I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you next week.